Good morning, Miss Yo. This is your scripture reading for the day. 1 John 3, 13 to 24. Do not be surprised, my brothers and sisters, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love each other. Anyone who does not love remains in death. Anyone who hates a brother or a sister is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life residing in him. This is how we know love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need and has no pity on them, how can they love the how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. This is how we know that we belong to the truth and how we set our hearts at rest in the presence. If our hearts condemn us, we know that God is greater than our hearts, and he knows everything. Dear friends, if our hearts do not condemn us, we have no confidence before God. We have confidence before God, and we receive from him anything we ask because we keep his commands and do what pleases him. And this is his command, to believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and to love one another as he commanded us. The one who keeps God's commands lives in him and he in them. And this is how we know that he lives in us. We know it by the spirit he gave us. Amen. Well, you're just going to get a lot of me today. I hope that's okay. So as we mentioned, we are in a series entitled Letters to the Church. And we're looking at these portions of the New Testament. The New Testament is mostly letters. It's mostly letters that are written to real churches that are genuinely trying to navigate what it looks like to be a follower of Jesus in a real world and a real place. And they are comprised of real people, real friends and family that gather to do church together. And so they have real stories. And when the text invites us to remember or it invites us to center ourselves or it invites us to look back on a moment or look towards a moment, it would have been grounded in, well, real things. Real stories, real histories, real friendships. The thing that I think sometimes we can miss a little bit as we approach the text, that it is real letters to real people. And though we may not have been the original audience of those letters, we believe they are still for us. And so as we hear the correspondence of these letters throughout this next series, our goal is to treat them like real correspondence. Letters that invite us into a deep personal reflection, and as they invite us into personal reflection, letters that ask us some very important questions. Letters that challenge us with some good questions. And already, we've only been in this series for one week, but just as a way of confession or honesty, this series has just worked me. Having to remember my own Jesus story was a work that was way more refreshing and also so much more challenging than I thought it was going to be. 
And then our house church on Tuesday, we got to hear some of the stories that were coming from the community. And those were beautiful and also challenging and also revealing in ways that I did not expect. And it led to conversations that I did not expect amongst my house church group or even with my wife and I or even just kind of in my own personal heart as I've been reflecting and doing some hard work. I knew it was going to be like an important work that we were doing, but I don't know that I knew how hard it would be for me or how good it would be for me. Those two things are the same, hard and good. We began the series as a way of like preparing us for what comes next in terms of the year, in terms of our own lives. Like as we said in the Missio Voice, Advent, the season we're about to enter into, marks the beginning of the Christian calendar. So we begin the Christian calendar with the incarnation of Jesus. And so we wanted to look at November as sort of like a, reflection series, almost like the opposite of a vision series, a moment to prepare us for something, to get reflective, to look at the past, to remember something. But it is calling me and I think some of us into much different and harder and better work than was expected. At least that's my hope for all of you so far. The series began with Paul's words in Ephesians chapter 2 to remember, and we just heard Nikki's story doing that kind of remembering work, remembering how we first encountered Jesus, remembering what drew us into this thing, remembering who was a part of that story and on whose foundations we were established. Today, we want to move more into like the present, to where we are right now with a new question, which is this, what centers your faith today? What holds it together? What holds your faith together? Now, this question dominates the writings in the New Testament. So if you're reading the letters throughout the New Testament, you're going to consistently be coming into conflict with this question because it dominates so much of the early life. Because what holds the faith of the New Testament church, what keeps it together, well, it wasn't initially a clear idea. And not everybody was agreed on what held this story together. The initial followers of Jesus are all Jewish in ethnicity and in religion, and Christianity initially, as it just kind of begins to move from these initial Jewish followers, it looks deeply Jewish, so much so that Rome believes Christianity is just a Jewish cult or some kind of subsect. That's what they often refer to it as if you look at the historic records. There's this like weird Jewish cult about the Messiah, and it, we're just it's a piece of this other story, a smaller piece of this other story, in fact. And in many ways, that was true. Christianity is and remains a deeply Jewish thing. We emerge from a Hebrew story and a Hebrew people. And because of that, it was very easy to hold different pieces together in a way that didn't feel competitive. Practically, the way this looked for the early Jewish followers is that the Old Testament covenant, or Torah, and the New Testament story of Jesus just live together in harmony. I think this, is a, this image up here is an easy way of demonstrating this. The faith of these early Jesus followers was boundaried or walled in by the teachings of the Torah. They built it around the person of Jesus, structured their religion still around 
Torah. And yes, Jesus, the Messiah, the hero, the Christ, was at the center, this emanating, powerful life source, but still in relationship to the Torah. And Torah had been a beautiful boundary for the people of Israel, the Hebrew people. It defined them as an ethnic people group. It defined them as a religious people group. So it was deeply important to their story and their history. But a problem begins to occur when non-Jewish believers, Gentiles, you and me, want to encounter what is at the center of that faith, the person of Jesus. And as you're reading the book of Acts, questions begin to emerge very quickly about how do we welcome in non-Jewish believers and still hold these structures in place. So, for example, one of the debates in the New Testament, which is very thrilling, is do we require grown men to be circumcised in order to know Jesus? Do you require like a grown man from Armenia or Ethiopia, where this story is spreading, to obey the national laws of Israel in order to encounter the person of Jesus? Do you require someone who is in Turkey, a place where the story spreads, to gather in Jerusalem at the temple to worship Jesus as Torah requires? That's a question they have to wrestle with. Do you require someone who is of Greek heritage, whose diet is Mediterranean, whose culture and lifestyle is quite different than those in Jerusalem, do you require them to adopt the diet of Torah in order to encounter the person of Jesus? These walls and these barriers of Torah that held the early people of God together so well become obstacles to encountering Jesus. And when you get to Acts chapter 11, the early church has to have a whole council. It's like the very first big council of the church deciding what do we require of non-Jewish believers? What do they do to be in proximity to Jesus? And the place where this tension grows hottest is in the city of Rome. Rome was a massive metropolitan city. So lots of Jewish worshipers and Gentile worshipers are all trying to gather together around the person of Jesus, and they're having this conflict. And so Paul addresses it directly in Romans 10, verse 1 through 4, saying this, Brothers and sisters, my heart's desire and prayer is for Israel to be saved. For they did not know that the righteousness of God But they did not know the righteousness of God and sought to establish their own. They did not submit to God's righteousness, which is this. Christ is the culmination of Torah, the law, the boundaries that have been established. So that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. In this moment, Paul is naming the boundaries that have been put around the person of Jesus, these boundaries that were beautiful and hopeful and helpful, that were so defining for the people of Israel. Paul says, my hope is that these things save you. That's what they're supposed to lead to. They're meant to culminate in something. But there's been a miss for these people. It's not nationality or circumcision or temple or obedience to the law that saves you. Those things were meant to be an expression of something. Paul goes on to say in verse 9 and 12, he says, if you declare with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For why? There is no difference between Jew and Gentile. Paul's like, what is the center of this thing? What is the transforming 
overwhelming, life-giving thing at the middle of this, and he says, oh, it's Jesus. It's not the boundaries that they have established. It's this person. So the question for these New Testament churches is, what holds us? What draws us together? And what unifies us, even as these walls that we had built around our faith begin to come down? Those are, well, those are things we deeply believed in, and how do we hold ourselves together after they come down. I think today, like the New Testament church, we are in our own moment where our own boundaries and walls are being challenged. Where our own walls are being confronted, where the structures that we have built that hold our faith in place feel like they are under pressure. Now, some of us can name maybe what some of those boundaries are. And some of them are really just annoying, right? They're walls that got built up that are really annoying. When I was 17, I worked at a Christian bookstore. Uh, and this is a true story. Uh, I was 17, and grown men, always men, 50, 60, would come in to the store and argue with me about what the proper translation of the Bible was. It's always the King James Version, and I was always 17. <laughs> and I just think that's an important thing to say, that you're like, I don't pick the books on the store wall, sir. I'm here for the cool Newsboy albums. <laughs> now, we know that boundary, that line, that wall. It's easy to diagnose, it's easy to criticize, and easy to even consider Annoying, but most of the boundaries that we build, even really that one, this what translation we use, they come from a desire to protect, a desire to preserve our faith, a desire to hold something sacred, protect it from the world, or protect it from being watered down, or protect it from some influence, or even to protect the people that are within it. It's to keep the faith together. But I think we are in a moment where those walls are being deeply challenged. For some of us in this room, those walls are challenged because some belief within those walls is under attack. Maybe you were like looking at the wall one day, you're investigating it, just to continue using this metaphor, and you saw like a nail that was loose, and you go to pull on it, and as you pull on that nail, a lot more came down than you thought was going to. So you pull on a nail of like the history of evangelicalism in the United States, and a lot more came down than you were hoping it would. Or you're looking at the wall and you pull on a nail of like racial injustice in the church and like a lot more is coming down and I don't know exactly what of this wall is left. You pull on the wall of gender or some other theology or belief that has been causing anguish in you as you, as you work through it and think through it and as you pull that nail, you pull that board, so much more of those walls came down than you expected. And as you looked at the rubble, you were like, if this is part of the wall, and if this is what the wall is built of, and if the foundations of this wall are these kinds of things, well, then I don't want anything to do with these walls. So we tear them down. Move somewhere else. For some of us, the walls have been challenged or come down because we have experienced legitimate pain, abuse, and exploitation in religious communities or in faith communities or by a faith story. 
you once felt really safe inside those walls and then something shifted. Or maybe you never felt safe inside those walls and you just now understand why. Or once they did feel safe, once they did feel secure, once they did feel like a place of identity and hospitality, and then something shifted, an experience, an encounter. You got your own voice, and all of a sudden it wasn't the safe space it once was. And now that it became painful, we either tear the walls down, or I think some of us just hopped it and got out because we had to. And then for some, the walls are less about a teaching or a belief, and it's more about the relationships that we once held, that that actually felt like the defining boundary of our faith. The relationships, the people we knew, that's what held this thing together. And maybe they had an encounter where their walls came down, and now they're somewhere else, and so we're like, I don't know what that does to my own walls. Or maybe they built bigger walls. They got nervous, and so they built bigger, tougher, stronger walls. And you're like, I don't know that I even am welcomed on the other side of their walls. And so as the relationship changed, the nature of faith, the structure that held us together felt like it began to shift. And then again, some of us, though we may join in tearing down the walls or hopping the walls, another set of us, what we do instead is we see the tension and the pressure that these walls are beginning to experience, and we're like, you know, what we need to do is build them wider and higher. So we do it by trying to get really clear definitions, really clear positions, really clear statements. So I can build them wider and taller or maybe even tighter around me. Then I can protect this faith. I can protect my heart. I can protect the people around me. We can stay secure. We can stay together if these walls are just strong enough. Walls work, boundaries work, if the thing that you're trying to define or protect is small. If you're a rancher, anybody rancher in here? I'm just joking. <laughs> we live in the city. Best, best case scenario is we have like a white girl homestead. I can say that because that's my wife. If you're a rancher, you have some property. If you have a little bit of property and a little bit of animals, a wall is a really helpful way of keeping everything together. You know where the wall is. You know where the line is. You know where the defining feature of the property is. A wall is a really helpful way of keeping everything together. But if you have hundreds of acres and hundreds of heads of cattle, walls kind of actually become irrelevant. You might have a wall at the end of the property line, but if there is miles between where you live and the end of that wall, a lot of things can still get lost in the middle. So if you have a lot of property, a lot of land, a diverse array of cattle. Instead of a wall, you build wells. Sources of life at the center of a property that draw things back. Places of sustenance, places of support, places of nourishment. Water and food. Instead of being held together by walls, faith can also be centered on wells. These are sources of life that are 
rich and good, and they draw us back into the middle of something. This is the conversation that Jesus has with a Samaritan woman in John chapter 4. John 4, verse 9, Jesus comes to a well. It's an apropos location. And as he comes to the well, he asks the woman for water. And the Samaritan woman, naming all of the boundaries that have existed around historic faith, says this. The Samaritan woman said to him, you are a Jew. And I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? How can you cross all of the boundary lines that would actually say that we don't belong together, that we don't get to do life together, that your faith, your gender, your ethnicity, those are all things that would separate us out, that do not get to do life together. How can you cross those and ask me for a drink? She goes on to name another boundary line in verse 19. She says, sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. So again, naming the boundary lines, the Samaritans have come to believe that they can worship in their own homeland, but the Jewish people demand you to worship at the temple in Jerusalem. She's like, there's a divide there, a religious divide, a sacred divide, a where we worship divide that stops us from doing life together. How does Jesus respond to her? You can go back to verse 10. He says this. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The boundaries of ethnic worship, temple worship, They are coming down, and a new well is being dug, one of living water. The question is, what is the well? What is the thing at the center of our lives that would draw us back, that would be big enough to hold the tension of the walls coming down and being pressed on, but that would actually sustain and give life and draw us into something. The Christian philosopher Pascal has this famous wager that you might be familiar with. And in just a short, succinct summary of that wager, Pascal says you have to wager. You have to wager something. You have to center your life on something. It's not up to you. You're already committed. And riffing on this quote, more modern philosopher Jamie Smith says this, you cannot not bet your life on something. You can't not be headed somewhere. I really like this phrase. We live leaning forward. We live leaning forward, bent on arriving at the place we long for. We all live centered on something. The question is, is it worth it? Does the center hold when the walls come down? Is it worth the risk? This week, in our time of hearing stories, someone shared a story in which the walls of their previous faith had come down. And as they came down and they came face to face with the center, they realized it could not hold. Not for her. 
wasn't worth the risk. It wasn't worth the pursuit. It wasn't worth leaning into. So then for a time, that person was like, I, I don't have a center. I don't know what that center is, and so I'm just going to try to, you know, figure that out and drift around and discern and discover. Until one day, this person came into contact with, well, all of us. And began to ask a new question about, is the center here worth it? Is this thing that I'm discovering, this thing that I'm encountering, this story that's being told to me, is it worth it? And this person said that as they survey the landscape, they feel afraid. And I was like, that's such a courageous thing to say. And what a marvelous reflection on this question of, is it worth it? To look and be like, I am afraid of what this journey might entail for me. It felt like last week I compared faith to a mountain. and I tore my ACL skiing and the mountain changed in dynamics to me. It felt like a place that was very scary as opposed to a place that was fun and recreational. And I feel like in a similar way, this person is like naming that they're looking at a mountain and they're asking the question, like, is it worth it? Because it is terrifying to stand at the base of this mountain and say, do I want to venture in? Because the stories that are coming out of this mountain, they're not all good. They're definitely not all safe. Is it worth it to stand at the base of this mountain and to look ahead and decide to venture on the trail, knowing that it will be risky? Is it worth it? I think we all need to press into this question. What is the well? What is the center? What holds this thing together? Because as Smith says, we all live leaning forward. So it determines the drift, the purpose, the movement of our life, how intentional or unintentional it is. It sets the trajectory of our own movement, the well at the center. And for those of us in here that believe we know it, that believe we have a clear center, that's good and right. But it should probably be growing in how compelling it is. If it is a mountain that we're thinking about venturing into, well, we should probably do more than car camp at its base. So if we're going to do more than car camp, we have to wrestle with some questions. Is it worth going up? Jesus says before you build a tower, you should assess the cost. Before you go to war, you should make sure you can win. That's Jesus. Count the cost. Is it worth it? Is it enough to venture into the mountains? Now whatever it is that's going to center our lives, we know on one hand that it must be true. But truth alone is not enough of a metric to measure how and how good something is. There's lots of things in the universe that are true that are not all that good. For example, I learned this week uh, that in the 90s, a Casablanca remake, uh, remake was pitched starring Ashton Kutcher and Madonna. That's true and bad. 
not worth centering your life on. It will only make you angry, as it did all week for me. So whatever it is that is at the center of this story for us, the well that draws us, that holds the tension of the walls, it must be true, but it must be good. And for something to be good, it's no small request. For it to be good, it must be good enough to risk the mountains. For it to be good, it must be worth the walls coming down. For it to be good, it must be able to press back on the experiences that we've had that have forced those walls to come down. For it to be good, it must aim my life at something, and yet I think also be surprising enough to stumble into. So, Missio, what is at the center? Is it true and is it good? Is it worth risking the mountains for? Is it enough? Now, the text that we read at the very beginning of this morning from Julie, John answers that question. And then as he continues to tell the story, John comes to a second part of his letter and he says this. There's no text for it. I just want you to hear it. John 4, verse 7 through 9. John says, Dear friends, let's love each other. Because love is from God, and everyone who loves is born from God and knows God. The person who doesn't love doesn't know God, because God is love. This is how the love of God is revealed to us. God sent his Son into the world so that we could live through him. This is love. It is not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son as a sacrifice for us. Monsieur, that is the center of our collective faith. God who is love, who sacrifices himself for his friends and his enemies. Now we know that. I think most people in this room, if you're here, you are either like a committed follower of Jesus or you're at least Jesus curious. But knowing a thing, believing a thing, is not the same as being drawn to a thing. So, Missy, what we're going to do now is move into a moment of responding to the correspondence that came to us. To reflect on that question, is it worth it? What holds the center? What is at the middle of everything? What is this thing that might unite us, that might overcome, that might keep us together, that might tear down boundaries and actually give us a new way to live? What is at the center? Every week we're reading and writing these letters. And so to help us prepare for this moment, Lydia, one of our pastors here, is going to read her own story of what centered her, what drew her, and what continues to draw her. She's going to lead us, guide, and model for us, and then we're going to create a few minutes to read our own. Morning. 
<clears throat> so I was really touched last week um, when I glanced at one of my son's letters um, when we first uh, were invited to do this. And he wrote about how his grandmother, my mom, uh, as the way in which he first experienced Jesus. It's like, oh. And I think I have to agree with him. Um, since I can remember, my mom has modeled faith in Jesus. Um, she prayed with me and she read Bible stories to me. Uh, but even more importantly, she showed me with her daily life what Christian discipleship looks like. And so some of my earliest childhood memories are of her being up before everyone else um, every morning with her gross Folgers coffee <laughs> in her hand, which I remember that was the first coffee I learned how to make, so much simpler than a Chemex. Anyway, coffee in her hand, Bible in her lap. Um, and I remember the feel of the pages of her Bible, like how crinkly and thin they were from being turned and underlined for decades. Uh, how she wrote people's names, including mine, next to certain verses. Uh, how she told me that when I was a baby, she would whisper the words of the Shema, Deuteronomy 6, Hero Israel, the Lord your God is Lord alone. She would whisper that into my ear. And I also remember how her faith and her theology were not and have not been static. Her own spiritual journey took her from being uh, a Southern Baptist who didn't smoke, drink, dance, curse, uh, to a charismatic who spoke in tongues, to a reformed Presbyterian with all the five points of Calvinism, and now a, an Anglican. But never simply just jettisoning, jettisoning each denomination in favor of just something new, she incorporated the good that she gleaned from each tradition and allowed herself to be moved by ideas that were new and unfamiliar to her. And unlike a lot of people that I know, um, it wasn't just an infatuation with theology. She didn't even finish college let alone have something like, you know, a formal seminary education cross her mind. Rather, what's always driven her spiritual journey is her passion for Jesus. So like turning a gem over and over in your hand, every stage reveals a new dimension to her. And even still, her hunger for learning and growing the Lord has not waned, even at 74. I hope my mom isn't listening because I probably got her age wrong. But anyway, <laughs> into her 70s. She continues to model hunger and growth. Um, I personally came to my individual faith at a young age. I remember wandering into my parents' bedroom late one night at age five or so and asking what it meant to have Jesus, quote, in your heart, something I had no doubt heard hundreds of times through Sunday school and evangelical kids' programming. <laughs> uh, they prayed with me, my parents, and, and from then on I considered myself a Christian. And for a kid, I was pretty devout. I prayed a lot, and I read my Bible faithfully every night, and I wrote in my journal asking God for help with my elementary school problems. Uh, it's a pretty typical salvation story for uh, an American evangelical millennial, but I give thanks for it. My life was you know, relatively easy up until middle school, and I guess you could say it was then that I rebelled. I started to rebel very briefly. Uh, I questioned everything my parents almost literally spoon-fed me with, from birth. Uh, I started to feel very alone in a way that probably a lot of kids in high school experience um, feelings of loneliness and feeling misunderstood. And in anger and sadness, I rejected all the things that I felt were trying to tell me that everything was okay, including my faith. 
And so it was through the influence of a Bible teacher and through the work of the Holy Spirit that the person of Jesus became real to me in a way that had never, he had never been before. I think what I was rebelling against was what I perceived to be sort of the fakeness of the church, which I'm sure a lot of you can relate to, and just this idea that Jesus wanted us, his main goal was to make us all very nice boys and girls. And my teacher presented Jesus to me in such a way that made me realize just how much of a radical that Jesus was and how countercultural he was. That he actually didn't come to start a religion at all, but in fact to disrupt the system and is still all about transcending whatever boxes or limitations we try to put on him when they get in the way, much like what Johnny was just talking about. Yes, Jesus cared about me personally. Yes, he cares about how I live my life. And yes, he came to save me from my sins, but he came to do so much more. He came to restore everything, all creation, in fact. And this was a part of Jesus that I had never really heard of before. I could go on with the different twists and turns my faith has taken as I entered adulthood and parenthood, but those are the beginnings of my faith. And what I realized when I look back over my life is how beautiful it is that just as God has done throughout history with his people, Jesus has met me where I was in every stage of my spiritual journey. In college, he was there patiently guiding me as I navigated a large university where all of my academic heroes were pretty vocally opposed to religion of any kind, and most especially Christianity. Jesus was there as I began to wrestle with my evangelical upbringing after college and when I attended seminary and learned how to read scripture in a very different way. Everything I knew about the Bible <laughs> seemed to fall apart. I give thanks that he's, he's never left me during doubts, during seasons of loneliness or desperation, reminding me that he sees me. And each time that it feels like whatever I'm experiencing has finally revealed the limitations of my faith, like, this is it, jig is up, it's going to finally be chucked once and for all. He expands it by showing up. And what I think continues to draw me to Jesus, or what I continue to find compelling about Jesus, is the idea, which is a very simple one found in John fourteen nine, that if we want to know what God is like, we look to Jesus. Jesus said this about himself. And he also said in that same chapter that he is the truth. And so whatever else I question about my faith, I can always trust that Jesus will take me into truth. Paul says in Colossians that Christ is the way that God holds all things together. Since the beginning of everything, Jesus was there. And without him, nothing makes sense. It's not just that he came to show us all how to live nice, moral lives. He came to show us how to live in truth. He came, came to show us reality itself, how to live in tune with reality. And so when I'm plagued with doubt, when I start to think, you know, what if none of this is true? Did we all just make this up so that we would feel better about dying? I think about uh, Pascal's wager, which Johnny referred to earlier. It's not a matter of whether you'll bet your life on something, but on what. You're already committed to that by virtue of just being alive. And I am convinced that life in the kingdom of God is the ultimate picture of how the world ought to be. 
it's the good life. And so for me, the way of Jesus is still the best possible way to live. Missy, would you pray with me? Jesus, thank you for all the stories in this room. Jesus, thank you for the way that you have shown up unexpectedly in all of our lives. Where you've met us, where we are, because you know us and you see us. Teach us, Jesus, how to listen to our lives. Help us now as we reflect on our own stories. Give us language on how to articulate our faith. Where you've been made real to us and how you've changed us. In your precious holy name we pray. Amen.